maybe I should give you a proper introduction. Well, yeah. all right. So, uh, welcome everyone to the Lee Show podcast. It's great to be back with you all. I am here with a very special guest, good friend of the show, Adam Fisher. Adam is uh, a man of many talents and a man who brings out talent in others. And that's a that's a skill, I think. It's um it's that that in and of itself is a skill. I think of it sort of in the same genre that I would think of managing people, where a lot of people think that it's just something you do when you get more senior and it's just that you then you become the boss. But it's an actual specific skill. And I think bringing out the talent in others is a specific skill. And Adam does it well, and he does it professionally. So Adam, welcome. Thank you, Lee. Um, so when did you discover that you have the talent to coach people and help them bring out their own genius? You know, I think this goes back to when I was really little. And um, I had a younger brother and an older brother. And my younger brother was quite a bit younger, like almost six years younger. So like my role with him was sometimes not just like, you know, big brother, but like, you know, helping him with something, you know. And so that um, role of kind of being someone's cheerleader or mentor, you know, like, and I remember saying to myself, sometimes like, like, you know, it's weird. Like sometimes I kind of feel like his uncle, you know, because <laughs> he was so much littler and, um, uh, it doesn't mean we didn't do brother stuff, but I, I, I remember it all the way back to then. And I remember, you know, probably third grade thinking to myself like about how my teachers taught us stuff and sometimes struggling with a concept. And then after a while being like, oh my God, like if they had only explained it that way at the beginning, then I would have gotten it. You know, it's this whole, you know, and that wound up, you know, leading me to do different kinds of teaching. I did a lot of academic tutoring and test prep tutoring and also cello teaching and lots of different stuff of that sort for years. And really honed that ability to see what someone was capable of when they couldn't see it. And over time... Do you think being a middle child contributes to that? Like when I, people talk about middle children, like they have middle child syndrome, right? Yeah. Like they're all, it's some sort of like Brady Bunch thing where they're all <laughs> fucked up being in the middle. And is, totally. it, is it something like that? Is that a real thing? Did you feel that? I think it's a real thing. It's funny that you mentioned that because I was always a little puzzled that middle child was said like, oh, I'm sorry, you're a middle child. Like it's some, some bad thing. And I always found that, yeah, you do in a sense get caught in the middle. Like you're not the, you don't have the privileges of the oldest child and you don't have the like little kid attention that a little kid does. But as someone who mostly likes to just sort of be left alone, um, do you think you like to be left alone because you were a middle child and they neglected you? You know, I, I wouldn't say I was neglected. Um, <laughs> far from it. You know, I had very involved Jewish parents, so I, I don't think... Wait, do you, you love know, that that's my assumption that you were neglected I, as it's a middle so child? so funny. No, it's so funny. I mean, look, you know... Um, my I have aunts that are middle children on both sides, my mother's and father's side, and they're... I mean, it fucked up both of them. I mean, you look at my Aunt June, she's a nut. 
Well, you know, it, it gives you a lot of compassion for both ends, right? Because you understand the younger child, you know, feeling, you know, pushed around by the older sibling. And you also understand what it's like to be the older sibling and being have to be responsible when the little kid gets away with it. Like, you know, you, you kind of it's understand. Empathy. Yeah. Or, or sympathy? Is it is- em- empathy? It's really, I guess it is empathy here, right? Because you yeah. you can relate because you've experienced these things a little bit. Yeah, you know, like in in coaching a client, I mean, on that, like the technical terminology, empathy is good because you understand where they're coming from and can relate to it. Sympathy is supposed to refer more to like when you're actually feeling what they're feeling and you don't want to be dragged into having the same emotions your client's having, because the whole point is that you have some objectivity. Wait, and some sorry, distance. isn't it the opposite? Empathy is like, I can relate because I've experienced the same thing, so I know what it is, whereas sympathy is, I can try to relate because I can imagine what you're feeling. I've never experienced it myself. It might depend who you ask, but when I've heard it discussed recently, it's usually been the distinction that sympathy is that you're getting wrapped up in it with them. And you don't want to do that. You don't want to be like, you know, uh, like if your client is angry, you don't want to be angry with them. You might want to understand where their anger is coming from. But you the don't internet, want to into it. Uh, Google says sympathy involves understanding from your own perspective. Empathy uh-huh. involves putting yourself in the other person's shoes and understanding why they may have these particular feelings. I, don't know, I think we might need to have yeah, a, I, you a, know, a psychologist that, on the show. Yeah. I, I, I remember like intro to psych classes, taking intro to psych classes. Um, you know, the most interesting thing I remember from intro to psych class was learning about the fight or flight response. Mm. And uh, that has, uh, I'm going to digress here for a second, but um, I started running when COVID started. I couldn't lift weights anymore. So I started running. and And one of the things that I, learned is like, you know, at the one mile or mile and a half mark, I'd start feeling like, oh crap, I can't go on anymore. It's because our bodies have a fight or flight response uh, around that point usually. And then most people flight, they give up. They're like, I can't run more than a mile and a half. But if you fight through it, anyone can do it. So anyways, sorry, I'm digressing here. True. Save that. I should do a whole episode about gym stuff and and save that for, (laughs) for the gym episodes. Okay. So you were a middle child you can sympathize and empathize maybe which whichever um, you know it, right one it, or the other you can do one or both the the important um, thing being to be able to to tune into someone else and to get where they're coming from without being caught up in what they're caught up in so that you can contribute another perspective right you don't want their problems to become your problems you just want to help them through what they're going through and coach them. Exactly. As opposed to like just a mutual like griping session where two friends might get together and both complain about like the state of the world and how horrible it is. And they're where they're both wrapped up in the same complaints right. or unease. This is more like, you know, um, to be able to tune into someone and still maintain your own, your own, your own. So, uh, so you've space. worn many hats, right? You've been, a GMAT coach, you've been a physicist, you've been a composer, a professional cellist. 
what was the moment where you were like, I'm going to become a life coach? That's, that's the job for me. Was it like someone said to you, Hey, you're pretty good at this. You should do this for a living. Or did you just always think that of yourself? Like what, what got you to that point? It was a few different paths coming together. So I had done uh, tutoring work for a long time where I would work with, you know, college students on their essays, applying to grad school, law school, business school, this sort of thing, where they were kind of imagining where their lives were going to go in the next few years. And I found that to be a right, trans- And I guess thinking through that is sort of coaching in a way, right? Yeah. And it, it, it was kind of a transformative experience in that they went from thinking, oh, I have to write this essay because this school is demanding me to write this essay to get into a school to, oh, wait, I actually figured some shit out <laughs> about what I want to do with my life and why I want to go to grad school, which is a huge, you know, uh, a huge shift. And over time, I realized, you know, it would be so great to do that kind of work with people further along in their lives. You know, what happens after grad school? What happens after that first job? What happens when you're 10 years into running a company and you're not sure where you want to go with it? What happens when you're, you've got a career and a young child and a spouse and you're trying to put all this together and make a life that really is the life you want to have? And But isn't uh, that therapy sort of? Like what's the difference between what you're doing and, and a therapist? What's the difference between this and say psychoanalysis? I think a lot of it has to do with, well, it's a couple of things. First of all, I'm not treating medical conditions. Like that's very important. Psychoanalysis isn't treating med. I'm not talking about a psychiatrist who's writing scripts. I'm talking about like, right. But even the psychoanalysis, the Freudian psychoanalysis, what's different between that and what you're doing? Is it less focus on mommy issues? When, when someone comes to work with me, often the first thing that I'm asking them is, what do you want to create? So the emphasis, you know... Uh, it's forward-looking. Yeah, and, and, and the emphasis, I always think of it, it mainly like people that are coming to, to see me, either they have some, some fire burning inside of them of something that they want to create or do in their lives, and they're not quite sure what it is, but they know there's something that they're not quite connecting to and, and getting a hold of, or they have figured out something that they really want to be doing and they're just not doing it and they need help getting into action with it. And so that the two main categories like blockers are, or something. Yeah. So either it's someone who wants to move to wants to make shit up, you know, like there's something they want to create or it's someone who wants to get shit done, <laughs> you know, and usually it's, it's aspects of both, you know? So and my background, you know, as, you know, a composer and improviser and songwriters, I make shit up all the time, you know, and uh, in my tutoring work too, you know, I would make up different problems or different ways of attacking things, different ways of studying things. And so, you know, that whole um, leap into the more or less the unknown where you're like, okay, I want to make up something new that you know, that scares the shit out of people. And so, and often it really is something that there's like a real deep seated desire to do that. And it can be really helpful to have someone who's, who's done that to be there with you 
and help you like access that so, kind of thing. I mean, I can share personal example here. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I launched this podcast in many ways with your nudge, right? You, it was our coaching session sessions together that helped me. And for me, the biggest issue was a blocker, right? You talked about these two categories of issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just, I kept coming up with all sorts of reasons why I couldn't do this. And then you were like, no. And, and we talked through all of those and you helped me get unstuck, right? You helped me to push through every one of those blockers. And I still have some, uh, and it's weird because there are things that like are are I can totally do, but that terrify me, and and I don't know why they terrify me, but you know there I've noticed like everyone has their things that people have different strengths, right? Some people are good at one thing and not another. There are things that are totally natural for me, and then things that just I I think about it and I feel this extreme feeling of uh, that it's it's daunting and. Um, and I can't, I can't push through that. So, you know, it was our coaching session that helped me to, to do this. So for me, it was really, I knew what I wanted to do. I just felt blocked. Right. Um, I'm curious, you know, do you ever sit there and think that you yourself have blockers that you feel stuck on something where you're like, I can just coach myself through it? Or do you feel like you need to then talk to someone else to coach you through things? Like, can as a coach, can you coach yourself or does it not work that way? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. You know, uh, a really simple example of this would be, you know, you mentioned weightlifting um, and I do kettlebell workouts. And there's a certain extent to which I can self-correct and coach myself with, I know enough about it. I've done it for a few years. I've been coached enough in that regard that I can often figure out the next thing. Then there are moments where I'm like, yeah, something's not working here, or I'm at a plateau that I can't right, get you over. Need a trainer or and something. I need, yeah. and I call my coach, you know, my fitness coach. And I say to her, look, you know, let's hop on the phone. Can I show you a video of what I'm doing? And, or, you know, I meet her and, you know, the same thing with, um, you know, something more abstract, if I'm working on something creative or something in my business or whatever it is, you know, certain things. Yeah. Like I have, and I sometimes have shared with clients too, sort of internal routines where I can work like sort of self-coach. There are ways of doing that, you know? Um, and then there are moments where I'm like, yeah, I need to talk to someone. And I have different coaches that I work with and different um, kinds of advisors of different sorts, you know, whether or not they uh, professionally refer themselves to themselves as a coach or not, but you know, but that's that's something I've had I've had in my life um, for decades. You know, I still have cello teachers; their voices in my head from decades ago. You know, they've been dead for twenty, thirty years, and I still hear their voices if I'm practicing something. You know, oh, why don't you raise your elbow? You know, like I still hear them in my head, and and um, you know, I will often hear that. And I'm honestly very gratified to hear that from clients where they say, you know, I was in this situation and I was trying to figure out what to do. And then I heard your voice saying this, and then I knew what to do. 
which is which is great. I even had like one of the most amazing uh, experiences I had recently was a client who was telling me how he was working with some of his employees. And I realized as he was telling me that he had internalized what he'd been experiencing in our coaching sessions and was in turn coaching his employees. And they were becoming more creative and, and showing more initiative and enjoying their work more because he was taking a more playful stance with them, you know, where, where they would come to him like, ah, oh, I don't know what to do. I can't do this. Can you do this? And in the past, he would have just taken out of their hands and say, oh, well, you know, if you want it done right, you got to do it yourself. And instead he was like throwing it back to them like, hey, no, you can do that. And they're like, really? Yeah. Why don't you go and ask them and figure this out? And, and he would have these back and forths where the whole thing became much lighter and they wound up doing something really amazing that they didn't know they could do that he didn't originally know they could do. Right. And so the whole trust level was increased. Everybody then feels better. And yeah, totally. And and so, you know, he started having this experience of, wow, it's taken a bunch of responsibilities off of his shoulders because now his employees can really do that stuff. He's like, they do it better than I would anyway, because it's not something I really want to be doing. Right. And then he's got freedom to focus on like big picture stuff. And like, that's, that's probably the best thing I can hear. Right. Is where, when, when that whole, experience then translates and affects other people. And so it can spread out exponentially, you know, like that, that shampoo ad from when I was a kid, like she told two friends and they told two friends and, you know, it, it shows the people multiplying on the screen. It's like from like the, I don't know, the seventies or eighties, but, um, you know, it has like an exponential impact that way. And that's, you know, uh, a really, right. That's powerful. really gratifying thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. very powerful. That I, it's, I, it's got to be interesting to just watch the success of of these clients. Now, I sort of have a perception that there's a lot of half-assed life coaches out there. There's there's like the big media personalities. There's like the Gary V's of the world, right? So Gary V has just, I mean. Hey man, you just gotta you just, just build the internet brand, man. You can just do it. Anybody, anybody, you just gotta, you gotta be patient with social media. Um, so there's like the Gary V's of the world who who are very successful. They're filthy rich. Um, being there's sort of like a, a a blurred line between like motivational speaker, I guess, and life coach in those cases, or just like say. I feel like these guys just sort of like say platitudes and and post you know, thirsty selfies of themselves on Instagram. Whereas you are truly focused on the one-on-one, right? You're focused on not this like Adam to the world sort of bullshit like these internet guys are doing. You are doing a one-on-one product that feels very different. It's as personalized and as attentive as can be. Now, what do you what do you have an opinion on these kinds of guys? Like, do you look at them and go like, yeah, it's it's bullshit. That's it's a, a fake product. Well, let me say this uh, before I, I will answer. I'm not trying to get you to disparage no, Gary no, Vee. No, 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 that's I, fine too if you want to. But like, that's not what I was aiming for here. Though that's no. fun. Look, there's so two things. One, there's definitely a really powerful kind of. Um, intimacy in working with someone one-on-one because there's a freedom to be vulnerable you know 
it's not in front of other people. It's very, you can, like I tell my clients, you can say literally anything, right? Unless you're telling me that you're actually going to go out and commit homicide or something where I have to call police. Other than that, like you really say anything, don't, and you don't have to be, this is a completely safe space and we can look at what it is you're saying. You're not going to judge people? Super not judgy. No, because, you know, like this is something that I deal with in songwriting all the time. Like the, the way to be able to have creative flow as a songwriter is to be willing to write absolute junk. Like for every like decent song I've written, I can't tell you how much complete junk has come out. And often when I'm like, I don't know if you've ever watched, like if you watch like the Beatles documentary that get back, right? I didn't, I, I want to, I've not, you seen should, it they show Paul McCartney doing songwriting. And I was so thrilled to watch him work because I was like, and I'm not comparing myself to Paul McCartney here, but I'm saying, I see that's how I work too. Like you've got a melody and you've got some words and then the second verse comes, you're like, yeah, yeah, it'll just, it'll be blah, 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 blah. You know, there's some filler words and then you kind of figure it out later. And while you're doing it, like you're just letting yourself put whatever you need to put down for the moment as a placeholder just to get moving. And then you can go back and adjust the words and make sure the rhymes work and fix the melody. And there's all kinds of things you can do afterward, but just getting that flow going. So in a session, like that's the most important thing. And I, I, the, I love to start with people from a place of, okay, well, how can we have fun with this? Right. How can we play with this? What would be, you know, okay, that's one way of doing something. What would be another way, a third way, a 10th way of doing this, you know, like really like mess around with things. And also true that that can also be really fun to do in a group. And it's something that I often found in school was missing was they didn't take advantage of the group scenario. So like in school, often having a classroom winds up being just a much less good version of teaching someone one-on-one because you can't deal with everybody's individual needs, right? With 30 kids in the class. I mean, there's like a whole theory that, uh, that, that the world has fewer geniuses now because the old school tutor style uh, doesn't exist anymore. Like what, like the aristocratic tutor. Maybe. Um, that, and, that that was, that sort of personalized resource was what created geniuses back well, in the day. It's a great resource. And yet there are also amazing learning games you can play with a group of students mm-hmm. or with a group of clients, but you have to know what, which modalities work, right? Like, for example, if you're doing like, if I were doing like a songwriting class, like having a few different people in the class, you can take turns making up the next line of a song. Like there are all kinds of things that a group lends itself to in a really fun way, but that's different from what you're talking about, which is someone getting online and just sort of broadcasting, you know, a platitude or some like, you know, generic preconceived thing, which is, yeah, that's not, it's not, it's not what I'm doing. And, and yes, people are having success doing that. And, you know, there's a big difference. How how do you, how do you not be judgmental? Like that's, to me, that's one of the parts that I find to be fascinating. So I was in therapy for years and I don't know if my therapist judged me or not. I'd like to think not, but I don't know, but I, I definitely found there was a point where it was hard for me to continue to be honest in certain areas because I would, you know, sit there one week and be like, I'm not going to do some, some thing. 
And then I would go do that thing the following week. And then I would be too ashamed to admit it because I just said the fall the previous week, like, I'm not going to do that. And I was afraid of my therapist judging me. And and it's hard. It's hard to do things if you're afraid of people judging you. Do you do you tell your clients outright like I am not ever going to judge you? You can tell me anything you want and I'm not going to judge. I'm not here to do that. Like, do you do you find that you do that or do they just get yeah. that vibe from you? I, I think both. I think both. I think that because um... I, I think that's so <laughs> that is such an important thing to emphasize for me personally, but I, I have to imagine there are many others who would find that to be meaningful. Yeah. Well, and, and finding, honestly, you know, finding the beauty in things that are messy, right. you know, like being able to have a discussion about something where someone has you know, and I think part of that has to do with having done a lot of that kind of work on myself, you know, where I would be with a therapist or a coach or whoever, a teacher or a close friend or partner and allowing myself to be vulnerable enough to say, you know what, this is the shit that's in my head right now. I'm just letting you know, this is where my mind is. And having someone on the other end who wasn't all judge or whatever, but actually listen to me and knowing how powerful that is to be able to say, wait, let's, let's pull apart these threads and see what's actually going on here. And is that thing that I'm believing really true? And no, actually, maybe that's not really true. And maybe it could really, you know, be something different. And, you know, cause we get, we play these movies in our heads, you know, um, I call it like the, you know, the way that the chorus of like a pop song is the part that keeps repeating. It's like the words that sure. everyone knows the verse and yeah, no one remembers the verse, but like the chorus, right? Uh, and so I think of it as like every person has at least one, if not a few, like a personal chorus that sort of repeats in the back of their head, either consciously or subconsciously. It might be something that their parents taught them when they were very little and got ingrained, might be something they came up with on their own, but it's often a, those are often not positive things. You know, it's some kind of limiting thing, you know, that gets in their way and or puts things in a negative cast and those kinds of words like you know it's like a mantra that can have a very you know negative effect on someone and taking that sort of digging that out and saying well okay this is what's actually rattling in my brain and having someone else go oh let's look at that not to say, oh, you, yeah, you're what a jerk you are for having that in your brain and realizing, yeah, we all carry things like that. And it's, it's really but there's, worth there's a difference them. between like having baggage mm -hmm. and uh, not doing what you say you're going to do. Right. And that's and so maybe that's part of why, like, I, I was so worried about my therapist judging me. I, look, I've been in I've been in AA for 20 fuck 21 years 21 and a half years i think part of the reason i've stayed sober is because i'm just like terrified of people at AA meetings judging me for relapsing <laughs> so i've never relapsed um I, I don't know by the way while we're on the subject yeah uh, uh, uh of this are you a wine person not like, particularly do you drink wine not i particularly. i i mean obviously i don't uh 
I, like I said, I've been sober for 21 years. So it's a little strange that one of the sponsors of this podcast is VinoVest. VinoVest is a company that lets you invest in wine. It's the easiest place to invest in wine. I guess there were like some smart venture capitalists from Silicon Valley. They liked to get saucy. And so they partnered up with master sommeliers and data scientists. And they started this company where they like buy some wine and then you can invest through them into these bottles of wine. Now, my biggest question was, what is a master sommelier? Uh, I don't, that seems like a really, could you imagine referring to yourself as a master sommelier? That just feels like a very self-aggrandizing I think I've met a master sommelier or two. That's a like an actual one. An act. Well, I don't know if it was a master sommelier or just a sommelier, but I definitely know uh, a couple of people who trained to become sommeliers. Yeah, I feel yeah. like you remember that movie, uh, Dinner for Schmucks, about the people who have like a dinner party, and then they have to like compete to bring the biggest idiot to the dinner party. I feel like oh, if it's I a French met, movie. That's a French. Yeah, it was movie. originally Le Dîner de Con, and yes, then they I remade that it in English. I, yeah, I saw right. the French one. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so in the French one, there's like a guy. He's and and one of the guys. He's he's on a train, and he sees someone building like a a model ship out of matchsticks inside of a glass bottle on mm-hmm. a train, and he's like, "I've got a dinner party for you." I feel like if I met someone who self-identified as a master sommelier, I would immediately, my first thought would be like, have I got a dinner party <laughs> for you? So anyway, so, so there's these master sommeliers. Um, I mean, the, you know, I was, I was on vacation once and we were out to dinner and this sommelier brings over a bottle of wine and he's, you know, talking all about it and the history of this wine. And it wasn't even like that expensive. It didn't merit such a discussion. And then he, he did this very theatrical thing where he poured the tiniest little sip for himself and then he swilled it around in his mouth and he went and he like spit it all over the ground and he goes, it's like battery acid. And he he really like, I mean, it was so bizarre. And I was sitting there like, it, I mean, come on, it can't be that bad. Whatever you're doing is just melodramatic. It can't be that bad. So to me, that's a master sommelier. Um, anyways, I you know, Wine, apparently, according to these VinoVest people, uh, investing in wine has one-third the volatility of the stock market, and it has outperformed what they call the global equity markets over the past 30 years with a 10.6% annualized return. That seems pretty darn good to me. Uh, Excellent wines are scarce. They increase in value over time. Um, They have outpaced inflation. They have been recession-resistant. You can even invest in wines using cryptocurrencies. And if you invest now with VinoVest, if you sign up now with VinoVest, you will get two months of fee-free investing. Just go to the link in the show notes. If you get this distributed to you on Substack, you'll see the link in there. So sign up, give it a whirl, fee-free for two months. Go check it out. If you get rich being a wine investor, and you are not a paid subscriber to this show, I will be furious. One but, question, uh, Lee. If, yes. you, if you don't get rich, do they at least get you drunk? I don't know. I, I don't know. I, it's like, I, I, I would imagine this is like financialization of wine, right? Yeah. Like you go there and it's like, I'll oh, buy this one, buy, sell that one. 
I, I don't know if you can short them. Maybe you could. I mean, you could imagine it's feasible to short a bottle of wine. I'm just thinking about like you could borrow it. Short a Cabernet. Yeah, you could you could borrow it from someone else and then sell it, and then you're short a bottle of wine. Like it's, I I could imagine it's possible to 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 trade these like a stock. Anyways, uh, VinoVest sign up now for two months of fee free investing. So, um, we talked a lot about your coaching. Uh, I'm curious how you would tie some of the things you've done. Like you have been. You've been a scientist. You've been a cellist. Uh, you still are a cellist. Um, how how many hours a day do you play cello? Uh, it varies. It varies. I'll tell you when I was when I was a kid, I practiced up to five or six hours a day. Holy shit! Yeah. Starting was, at what age? Well, I started playing when I was eight, but I didn't start practicing seriously until I was twelve, and I didn't start practicing that amount until I was about 14 or 15. And it was, I had a great system actually. It's actually a system. Were you, were you playing classical music? Yeah, yeah. And and was there was there music that just spoke to you? Oh yeah, as a, as a moody teenager. Class, uh, was there classical music? Yeah, I should oh, ask totally. That, that as really a, spoke absolutely, to you. Absolutely, absolutely. As a, as a moody teenager, I loved uh, moody Russian Music Shostakovich, for example, I just loved. Uh, I was I loved Brahms was very uh, near and dear to my heart, and all kinds of uh, contemporary, like twentieth century cello music. I played some really really wild stuff by Benjamin Britten, the British composer, and it was pretty intense, complex stuff that required a lot of you know, heavy duty practicing to master. And my cello teacher understood my psychology well and knew how to uh, motivate me. And it was, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot, it was a very difficult thing to master, but I really enjoyed it. And the, one of the things that came out of that, there were a couple of things. One is listening really carefully which clearly in the coaching context is super important. Right, that seems important. Yeah. And another one is sustained focus. One of the things that I help my clients with is, you know, they come in with a to-do list of 25 things, completely overwhelmed. And I'm like, look, you know, the human number sense only goes up to three or four. <laughs> you know, and if you if you have kids, you know this. If you've got like three kids that you're walking with, you can just kind of see from your peripheral vision whether they're with you. Four, it starts to get a little dicey. Once you hit five, you have to start counting heads because right. the brain cannot perceive five really unless it's in a pattern like your five fingers that you recognize as a picture or the five on a die where you can see it the gets, picture. It gets trickier, right? But otherwise, yeah. And and so when someone has a to-do list that long, of course they're overwhelmed. And so the first thing is always, okay, well, what are the one, two, tops, three real priorities here? And then everything else is going to have to either be delegated or postponed or just completely dropped. But get down to those things. And now, what? how can you bring sustained focus to that? Because you know, on the cello, if you want to learn a difficult piece, that requires hours, days, weeks, months, of if not years, of sustained focus on working on that. And once someone can get into the zone where they're really 
connecting to something in that way, that's when flow happens. That's when you can really access your creativity. When you're being pulled in 12 different directions, it's almost impossible. So you mentioned listening. Yeah. Um, there's a listener, a regular listener of this podcast. I'm not going to name names, but there's a regular listener of this podcast who is a, um, a psychoanalyst. And I once asked this person, do you ever find you're in a session with a patient and you zone out and then you realize that you haven't been listening for some period and you just, you don't know what they're talking about. And then they ask you a question and you realize like, oh shit, I don't know what they, what, what, what was just said. And what, what this, what this person said to me is that usually if they zone out, it's because the patient isn't being honest. And so it's very hard to connect with someone who is not being honest. And, uh, and so if, this person found that if they zoned out, it's because there was a reason for it. Like there was actually something to read into the fact that they zoned out. But do you ever find that it's hard for you to listen, that you're doing a coaching session? Maybe somebody's boring. Maybe, maybe they're not being honest with you. Like, do you ever find it's really hard for you to listen to people or is listening just like a skill that you really have, you know, 10 out of 10? Well, here's, here's where a little bit of uh, coaching technique comes into it. I tend to agree with your psychoanalyst friend that if someone's really hard, if it's hard to stay focused on what someone's saying, often it's because they're kind of skating on the surface. And the thing that they really need to be telling you or asking, they're not actually, they're, they're, they're avoiding it. And that avoiding is kind of like, it's kind of like pass interference. There's all these, you know, football players in the, in the way and you're like, Oh, and you can't really see what's going on. It's, it's, it's like a smoke screen. And so if I find myself in that position, I'll often do a pattern interrupt. I'll be like, Hey, can I stop you for a second? Hold on. <laughs> you know, just like, let's just stop the train. What's going on? Is this really what we need to talk about? And typically the answer is, yeah, no, no, there's something else going on. And I feel like you know, my job is not to just sit there passively for an hour and a half and let someone just rattle on about whatever comes in the window. I'm noticing. Right, you want to steer it. You want to steer the conversation. Well, you know, it's like we're there to get something done, right? And so I will frequently interrupt someone and being like, hey, hey, hello, I'm over here. Where are you? What are you? What's going on? And Typically, people are quite appreciative of that interruption because they actually weren't enjoying that ride they were on. They usually they're suffering, you know. And right. so they're, they're glad someone's going to pull. Oh them back yeah, in. because you know it's like they're on some kind of repeating loop of some sort, and to help them get off that, you know, to get off the hamster wheel and say, wait a second, we don't have to do that. Oh yeah, no, we don't have to do that at all. Let's do this. And so that's a really important empowering thing for me. It's an important and empowering thing for the client to know that that's possible. To know that when they're in a relationship with someone of any sort, whether it's a, a you know, a partner, a child, a colleague, 
that if they see that happening, they can also speak up and say, hey, wait, where are we going here? You know, that happens a lot like in corporate settings where there's just kind of a lot of nodding along and the person's talking in a meeting and everyone's kind of zoning out, you know, and that's that's a great moment for someone to say, hey, wait, what's what's actually going on here? Is this really what we need to be talking about? So, you know, you mentioned an hour and a half. How did you... Okay, so so two questions around that. Um, so you mentioned an hour and a half, and and my questions are number one: How did you decide that an hour and a half was the right length of time for a coaching session? And I guess the other thing isn't a question; it's I can share from my personal experience. I found that to be meaningful to me that a therapy session was typically fifty minutes, and it felt very rushed, and I you know, you just start to get to the good stuff and it's okay, it's time to stop. And I didn't feel that with you. It was very, a very to me, it was a very important part of the experience was that we could unpack things and I didn't feel rushed at all. So was that deliberate? Was that just by accident? Like you just did a, a couple sessions and people liked that. And so you were like, ah, fuck it. I guess I'll stick with an hour and a half. Or Or was there some logic in your head of, I'm going to do an hour and a half because this this is meaningful and that's sort of the limit people can go before they need to pee and stuff. Yeah, I think that 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 was informed a lot by my tutoring experience too. Like I mm-hmm. always found that somewhere in the area of 90 to 100 minutes was enough right, We did 100 do. minute sessions yeah, when, you, when can do, you were you, tutoring me. That's e- right. Exactly. You can do like a really solid chunk of work. People have busy schedules. Uh, breaking things into 45 or 50 minute chunks can be hard because you can't get enough of the, you know, and especially, you know, now we do a lot on zoom, but back then when people are like coming to an office, it's, you know, you're spending more time commuting to get there than the session. So from a practical point of view, anecdotally, I've found in coaching sessions in particular, a lot of the best breakthroughs happen sort of around the 70 to 75 minute mark. I don't know why they just do that said, I have had clients where a half an hour into the session, they had a major breakthrough and they were like, okay, look, I need to go and do something with this now. Right. Sure. Fine. I'll see you. I'll see you in two weeks. And I've I've definitely had that where they said, you know, my brain is exploding. I just want to go and work on this for the next six hours. I'm like, go, great, great, great. And some of my best cello lessons, you know, when I was, especially in grad school were five, literally five minutes with my teacher. I'd go in. That feels very, no, it was astonishing. That that feels exceptionally short. no, No, but it was incredible. He'd be like, okay, Ask me three questions. I say this spot. He'd go like, do this. Oh, wow, fixed. Like literally. And then he'd be like, just go. And and it's not that he was trying to shortchange me on time, but it was like the thing that I needed, I got, I go. Right. And so then you can it, move on. Yeah. Sure. So if a client, and, and I don't mean someone who's like avoiding doing quote unquote the work, but if someone hits like a major thing and they're like, you know what? That's it. That one thing sure. for me great. I don't need to push it to fill time. However, but you do want to give that space, right? If, yeah, if it, and, yeah. And, and to have uh, the space to really, there are going to be moments in a session where someone is totally silent and they're kind of looking diagonally up and they're just thinking. And I'm just sitting there saying nothing because I just want them to have space to work out whatever it is. And they may sit that way for five minutes. And at the end of five minutes, they have something. I mean, 
you know there, and, there's and something very meaningful to just being able to sit in silence also and reflect and uh, you don't it's a very powerful thing to just not need to fill the 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 space you know speaking of of speaking and and saying stuff you know i mentioned that i launched this podcast because of your your coaching you helped me to uh to to conquer what what i felt were blockers and when i launched the podcast i did a ton of research on all of the tools that you need to make a podcast there's lots of stuff out there i tried them all some of them were like insanely complicated. You would need to be an audio engineer to make them work. I'm not an audio engineer, so that's not for me. There were others that oversimplified things that wasn't good for me either. That was kind of useless. And after trying out lots of tools, I realized that the thing that we are using right now, I use it for every single podcast. It's Zencaster. I think it's an amazing tool I can record audio i can record video i can just watch you on video without recording the video i can i have separate tracks for you and for me so that makes editing a lot easier there's a secured cloud backup so you never lose your interviews uh very easy to use nothing to download you know i just send you a link and we start recording listeners of the lee show can go to the link in the show notes it's zen.ai slash the lee show and get 30% off your first three months. It's not even very expensive, but you'll get a discount and you should do it. And by the way, to go along with Zencaster, you should also talk to Adam Fisher because Adam Fisher, if it's not already clear from the last 45 minutes of our discussion, Adam Fisher is a great coach and he can help you figure out how to start the podcast that you've always wanted to start or, or start whatever you've always wanted to start. And he did it for me. So, uh, you know, I, I strongly recommend Zencaster if it's a podcast, but if not, talk to Adam, talk through your, uh, talk through your, your, your hopes and dreams. Uh, and, and, and I'm happy to be a resource as well, uh, for, for anyone that, uh, that that would be meaningful for. So Adam, before we, before we wrap up, uh, and I'm mindful, I know, I know you're going to need to, to run how many, I'm, I'm sort of curious about this. When you work with someone, is it a couple sessions and done typically, or do you find that it's like therapy where it's an ongoing relationship? And by the way, I sort of some, sometimes think that therapists will like sort of hold back. They know exactly what to say, but they'll hold back for seven years just so that you keep going and keep paying the bill. Um, I, I personally prefer to hold nothing back. Sometimes one or two sessions, like with your getting over the hump with the podcast, is enough to get to that next place and go. And that's, and then someone's complete with that. And that's great. More frequently, it's an ongoing process over time. You know, the thing I was talking about with the cello is sustained focus, you know, making change, especially internal change, deep internal change. There's often a lot of like sort of um, deep, work that goes along with this, which can vary from person to person, but that takes that often takes time and the time in between the sessions. A lot of change happens, not just during the session, but the digesting and and also experimenting. You know, you mentioned that I had a science background, which I did. I studied physics as an undergrad. And and the main thing I got from that wasn't actually the physics. It was the experimental method. You know, so 
I'm very encouraging of people to, when they're worried about, you know, should I do this? Should I that? I'm like, you know what? Let's run an experiment. Let's see. <laughs> Try something out. Get some information. Tweak it. Try a different version. If something really works, double down on that. If it didn't work, change it or 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 toss it. Do something else. You know, like it's very freeing to approach things in that way, and that can take some time. And it's really fun. So most commonly, I'm working with people over a number of months and. You know, if it's a sort of more defined project or transition they need to get through where there's sort of a timeline of six months or 12 months, that's one way of working where we can say, okay, we're going to work on this for X months and then see where we're at. Another way to do it is for someone to have a coach um, where it's more just of an ongoing sounding board and support thing where they're like, you know, I'm going to be navigating through all kinds of different challenges and there's an ongoing thing that I want to develop and a way I want to live. And I love having you there to help me do that. And and I'm open to both. I'm certainly not ever holding something back as a way of, you know, keeping someone I I, I my like I was saying earlier with that client of mine who was then coaching their employees, like my goal is for this to be whatever we're working on to be an internal shift that's then a permanent new part of that person's life. So whatever time period that seems to lend itself to will organically come out of whatever we're doing. Makes sense. You know, um, it's like writing so, a piece of music. Is it a three-minute song? Is it a 45-minute symphony? Well, it depends on the piece of music. Right. Um, where, where can our listeners find you? I am very easy to find. I have a website, adamfishercreative.com. And that's F-I-S-H-E-R, no C in my last name. So adamfishercreative.com, and I'm sure we'll have that in the show notes. Of course. That's the easiest way. Send me an email. I read my Are you emails. on social media? You don't like social media, right? Uh, I'm on Facebook, and and I'm on Instagram. I have a you, LinkedIn. It's not, it's not a meaningful channel for you. You know, I feel like social media is something that's nice as an added thing. You know, I have certainly made some amazing connections through right. social media. Right. But you're not a social media coach. You're not a Gary V type of guy. No, it's not my, it's not my focus. The, the focus for me is actually doing the work with my clients and connecting with people. And I just as often meet people in person, even in the COVID scenario, we'll meet people just in person as, as I would meet people online. But I've also met some extraordinary uh, people of all sorts through through social media contacts. You know. Um, well, thank you for joining the show today. Thank you for uh, for all your help in in launching this podcast. And uh, it was great chatting with you. And and uh, we'll be back with more soon. Yeah, my pleasure.